The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. How do you do? I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm his royal watching friend, Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 125 of The Big Picture for the week beginning September 18. Coming up on today's show... New SBS program, Look Me in the Eye, and something I can hardly put into words, the Emoji Movie. (laughs) Plus, a clinical psychologist will help us respond to grief, possibly the Emoji Movie, and Dame Judi Dench returns to the big screen royalty in Victoria and Abdul. Hello, big screen royalty, Sam Robinson. I'm just a prince, not a kid. <laughs> but I should say, <laughs> that, I, I am. I'm, you are just a prince. I'm looking forward to Mark Hadley talking about the Emoji movie. I've been looking forward to that all week. Oh, I am also excited. <laughs> I'm going to be taking my entire family. So we're doing a special report down on the red carpet. So that'll be a little later. All right. Well, what's in the uh, cinema at this week, Ben? Well, also at cinemas, chaps, uh, a movie is opening on Thursday called Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Uh, you might remember Kingsman, The Secret Service from a couple of years ago about a new version of uh, secret agents running around the world. This sequel somehow lines them up with their US allies that they previously didn't know existed. <laughs> uh, it stars a big cast, everyone from Taron Egerton, who was in the first film, to now Channing Tatum and a big Lebowski reunion with Jeff Bridges and Julianne Moore. Halle Berry's in this film and so is Elton John. Yes, when you don't know what to do with a franchise, you take it overseas. And you bring in Elton John. So Kingsman, The Golden Circle is opening at cinemas this Thursday. On Blu-ray and DVD, chaps, a little film you might like to call Wonder Woman oh, is out. Yes. I thought that was the most notable superhero movie this year by a long way. Uh, we reviewed the film earlier on the sh- uh, this year on the show. Go to thebigpicturewebsite.com for that review, thebigpicturewebsite.com. And while you're there, check out all the other reviews that are over there and the back catalogue of podcasts of The Big Picture picture because in short you'll be doing yourself a massive favor if you do that (laughs) Mm, go ahead and do it now well on tv netflix september 21st will release the good place season one now you might be thinking hang on a second didn't you announce this a couple of weeks back i was just thinking that hang on a second haven't we already talked about this bumped it so this is a community service announcement (laughs) right if you're sitting there going hang on these guys don't know what they're talking about you haven't just lost your mind and forgotten that you talked about this the the other week the series focuses on eleanor shellstrop who's a recently deceased young woman who wakes up in the afterlife. She's sent by Michael, Ted Danson, to The Good Place, a heaven-like utopia he designed in reward for her righteous life. Except she didn't actually live a righteous life. It's a clerical error, and now she's trying to live a life there without being found out. But that's not really the big news. I mean, everyone, just, just take a moment, sit down and pause. Star Trek Discovery is only one week away. Oh, is it? I've seen the advent calendar at Mark Hadley's house. <laughs> That's true. He's eating all the chocolates. <laughs> I've already skipped the end. I was sitting there going, there's a little chocolate Captain Picard. Anyway, but it comes to Netflix one week from today. Uh, so actually, well, one week from wherever you are, September 25, the iconic franchise returns with a fresh new series, new characters, a new ship. Sorry, I've just contained myself. Um, it's going to explore new worlds. And apparently the new tagline is to bring hope to a new generation. Maybe it's going to get bumped, like The, oh, good, the good Place. Like, they wouldn't do so that. Just so Mark That's, can talk about it in they, a few weeks' time. They wouldn't do that, would they? All right, we need a true or false. 
question. Indeed we do. Okay, so a little later in the show, we're going to be talking about Judy Dench in Victoria and Abdul. So I thought a little bit of true or false about Judy Dench would help us. Did you know that Judy Dench has a tattoo? Is that true? It's true. Wow. This part okay, that's not, a bit true. This is not the test. On her 81st birthday, she got a tattoo. Wow. Uh, it's a famous Latin phrase. It's on her hand. What is it? Let me give you three, and let's see if you know what she had tattooed on her hand. A, in vino veritas, which many people might know is in wine is truth. Uh, okay, right. did she have that tattooed? Carpe diem, seize the day. No. Right. In, or in, okay. vene vidi pompare, I came, I saw, I performed. <laughs> I'm sad she didn't get YOLO on her hand. <laughs> that would have been pretty good. Yeah, okay. I hear the disappointment in your well, voice, Sam. Lady, we'll, we'll tell you all about that. What Judy Dench has tattooed on her hand. All right, we're going to talk about a film now that, um, well, it's not the bottom of the barrel, but it's pretty close. <laughs> Uh, Toy Story introduced us... I'm not talking about Toy Story, by the way. <laughs> no, you Toy couldn't possibly. Toy Story no. introduced us to toys looking for meaning. Wreck-It Ralph acquainted us with video game characters looking for meaning. And now a new kids film has us looking at tiny digital graphics on mobile phones looking for meaning. Yes, this is the Emoji Movie. Ugh. In it, we meet Gene, an emoji who is able to express more than one emotion. Gasp! I know. My goodness! <laughs> it occurred so unprecedented, Mark just had to take his whole family along to observe this wonder. Welcome to the world inside your phone, where everyone is expected to act one way their whole life. Aw, snap! Ow. My name is Gene, and I'm supposed to be a man. You know, like, meh, who cares? But my problem is, I have more than one emotion. Check this out. Huh? Huh? <laughs> Son, please tell me you weren't laughing just now. What if you get sent out on the phone making the wrong face? Dad, I'll make the right face. Then I would finally fit in. Okay, so we've just come out of the Emoji Movie, the red carpet screening, and all of the families in there. It was a packed cinema, several packed cinemas, and now I've got my family to basically give me the lowdown on what they think. So let's see if we can get the story straight. How did the story begin? Who is the key character? Well, a main character was the, um, the Emoji, was, which was supposed to be the... Like, emoji, it doesn't care about anything, like... So that was Gene, and he was supposed to be meh? Yeah, but he actually had different emotions. Oh. Okay, so then what happened? Then he was going to get deleted, but he escaped with I-5, and then they met Jailbreak to plan so they could get to the iCloud, so they could make Gene a meh. Well, so it was about some guy who tried to get in love with a girl and and did you uh, understand the story was it easy to understand well not really because it keeps going to different places it was kind of hard to keep up with the story so let's start with our youngest what did you think of the emoji movie well i liked it it was really good. My favourite emoji was a poop one. Oh, okay, okay, that's... Because he was really funny. He was like, do we wash our hands? And then they just laughed because poop don't wash their hands. Okay, so let's see. Elijah, what did you think of the film? Well, I, f I thought it was, well, okay. It wasn't the greatest movie ever, but it was okay. I liked it. Did you have a favourite moment? Not really, no, but generally I thought the movie was okay. 
So now the opinion that matters most, the adult that actually has to take the children along. How did mum feel about watching this film? Uh, It was a little bit light on storyline and scripting. Um, Yeah, a lot of cliches. Okay, does anybody think there was a lesson in the movie? I think the lesson might be that people have different emotions and different feelings and don't you shouldn't like criticize them for how they feel just accept them for who they are. Is that right? Uh, I think it's about whoever you are it doesn't matter because he wanted to change but in the end he actually didn't want to change. I think it teaches me how to use the full pottery. Right. Did you feel like you're watching the same film again? I felt that the uh, script was a real combination of the Lego movie and also Wreck-It Ralph, this idea of being true to yourself, of finding your, um, your, true, your true identity, your true meaning. And I felt that it had, it had kind of stolen a lot of ideas from various other films and mashed them together. And so it didn't feel like a very strong storyline. And the, the characters themselves, I mean, they really lacked depth and um, and meaning and you're not telling me emoji were two dimensional. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you think there was anything sensible for kids in that film? I would say the only sensible thing I'd probably take away would be that you should treat everybody in an equal and fair and just way. And that would be stretching it. And that would be stretching it. Yes. Thanks, Hadley family. The Emoji Movie stars Jennifer Miller, Patrick Stewart, believe it or not, Anna Faris and TJ Miller as Gene. It's rated G for some scenes that may scare very young children. Uh, one of the poop emoticons doesn't wash his hands. <laughs> Beware of that. And it opened nationally last Thursday, September 14. And a little earlier, we were talking about a true or false Judy Dench getting a tattoo on her right wrist for her 81st birthday. It's a famous Latin phrase. Which one was it? A, in vino veritas, in wine is truth. B, carpe diem, seize the day. Or C, vene vidi pompare, I came, I saw, I performed. I think Judy Dench is a massive fan of Dead Poet Society, so I reckon that she got carpe diem, seize the day, in honour of that movie tattooed on her hands. What do you reckon? Um, uh, I don't know Latin, so I don't know what she Well, <laughs> let's go with the more educated Ben McKeckin. Um, actually, it is, in fact, B, Carpe Diem. She wow, that, did yeah. she? Probably, interestingly enough, she actually is a great giggler on set, apparently. You know, she giggles uncontrollably. So maybe in Vino Veritas, in Wine is Truth, was more accurate. Who mm. knows? Seize the dame. <laughs> oh. Moving right. on. Yes, I think we need to take a break after that bad uh, pun. Coming up, the anniversary of 9-11 plus TV tearjerker Look Me in the Eye has us asking, what's the best way to deal with grief? Welcome back. Now, not far away, Ben will be taking a look at the new SBS TV series Look Me in the Eye, a show that brings people separated by strong emotions and puts them in the same room to ask, is there a way of getting over what we feel? It aired during the same week that the world looked back on the tragedy of September 11, 2001, when terrorists flew hijacked airliners into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, killing almost 3,000 people. Whether it be personal or national grief, one thing's for sure, there's no easy way through it. So rather than guess, we thought we'd get our resident clinical psychologist, Dr. Lynn Worsley, to give us the benefit of her experience. G'day, Lynn, and welcome back to The Big Picture. Thank you for having me. Now, Lynn, what causes grief? Well, there's often um, there's a whole lot of things about grief that we can talk about, but what causes grief is usually someone has lost something or someone. Mm-hmm. And so there's a response which is 
uh, quite a tragic response, but also a response that, that means that the body starts to shut down or the head starts to shut down, doesn't cope very well with having to lose or feel abandoned by someone. So there are a lot of obvious ways, I guess, you could see that playing out. Someone loses a parent, someone loses a child. Yep. Um, are all griefs just as obvious, though, or, and maybe as powerful? Uh, no, not all grief is obvious. So you oftentimes can have a grief response from moving house. You can have a grief response from um, someone leaving your church or your community. You can have a grief response from, uh, you know, just losing someone in your immediate vicinity. Uh, and oftentimes it catches people off guard. Um, and and I guess other people would struggle to even appreciate it too. If you said, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm really feeling strongly about moving house. Yeah, yes, that's right, that's right. And it's, it's usually just a case of the body and the brain trying to get used to a new way of being. And we have a natural inclination to try and hold on to what we know and what we feel, feel comfortable with. So generally people have a response which sort of says, no, I want to pull it back. You know, I don't want that to happen. Um, and that's what, respond, that's what a grief response is. Now, Lynn, as a clinical psychologist, what, what do you think is the key way or key ways to deal with grief, to cope with grief? Oh, hang on. Is, it, is this the five-step thing, like there are five stages to grief, or is that kind of debunked? Well, it's not debunked, but it just means that if you start thinking about five steps process, it means that you, you know, nobody actually goes through the steps consecutively. Um, but, you know, everyone does it differently and everybody has their own way of grieving. Um, and some people seem to get through really quickly. Other people sort of linger. But the, probably the most important thing that we need to be aware of with grief is that there are different responses that most people go through in various ways. Some of that might be, you know, they're denying that it's happening, they don't particularly want to cope with it, so they keep forgetting that it's happened, and then they get surprised all the time when they remember, um, and then they might get angry about the whole process, and that doesn't make sense, and sometimes people get angry with the dog or the next-door neighbour or... The, the garden, you know, the garden fence or something that's got nothing to do with the actual situation at all. But it um, still does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And quite often I see people who are, you know, ranting and raving about some traffic violation when they've actually just mm. lost their wife the week before, you know. So it's really quite bizarre um, that we have a response that is that our brains just get angry but don't really want to deal with it. So realising that, accepting yep. that, um, do you put a time limit on grief? No, no. Um, they used to. They used to sort of say, oh, you know, you know, you, you could wear black for a certain period of time and, and then, you, then you move on. Um, I, I don't think you can do that. But I think what's really important is that you allow people to have a space to talk about it, to digest it, um, to, uh, you know, work through the process in some ways. And the best way to do that is with other people who care for you. Well, what if that's it's something impersonal, though? Like uh, like 9-11 yep. um, happened overseas. Can people in, in Australia really have a grief response to that? Oh, yes. I think what that happened, the, the grief response was that, is that um, looking on, you know, everything looked hunky-dory. Um, the 9-11 went made everyone realise that we're incredibly vulnerable, not just in America, but across the whole world. Um, so that grief response to that is that that changed everything in our thinking. 
um, those mm-hmm. in the Western world. And so there's a grief response to how dare they do that to us because we were so safe before then and now they've taken our safety away. And so there's that, that anger and uh, frustration but also um, an outpouring of grief, which was very obvious with 9-11. If you, and, you, know, if you visited the site before they did the rebuild, um, it was still you know, like a, a monument um, with flowers and, a, you know, the whole church around it had, um, had had filled itself with a memory of everyone's memories, which was interesting. Yeah, Dr. Lynn Worsley, clinical psychologist, thanks so much for joining us on The Big Picture, sharing your insights and wisdom into grief. Thanks. thanks. Bye. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Mark told us about this new TV show he'd heard about on SBS called Look Me in the Eye. And you and I, Ben, couldn't <laughs> contain ourselves. Yeah, so I'd just like to point out, you gave me a fairly oh, hard man, time. Oh, man, we could not contain ourselves. Well, the gimmick of the show, two people sitting opposite each other, they stare into each other's eyes for five minutes without speaking. That what made what made kind us, of a TV show is that? Yes. Mate, that made us laugh out loud, did it not, for, for, like, for some period of time. That's right. Well, <laughs> Ben... So, nothing fairer than to make Ben suffer it. Well, he did. He, yeah. he sat through the show uh, to take a look at Look Me in the Eye, a show which is actually more about reconciliation and reveals a lot about forgiveness. Without their words getting in the way, can a 33-year-old marriage be saved? Can a single mum win back her only son? Will a daughter forgive the dad who walked away from the family? Or a former child soldier see remorse in the eyes of the man who tortured him. Now, Ben, you laughed in my face when I mentioned this show. Yeah, I really did. Now, I understand, as we've been discussing off air, that you kind of like it. Would you like to begin with a public apology before we move on? (laughs) Yeah, sure. I'm sorry, SBS, for ever ever doubting that your show uh, wouldn't work. Look... Um, it's definitely not as laughable or as silly as it first sounded to me, and and also to you, Sam. I, yeah. I can I can tell you hand on heart, having watched it, um, it's just not as ridiculous as what the idea of people staring each other five minutes uh, sounded like. It's a really great platform for reconciliation, actually. And the first episode in particular uh, made me tear up. It's it's quite an amazing. If anyone who hasn't seen it, it's, it's quite amazing. There are two South Sudanese guys who live in Australia, and um, um, the what they're why they're coming back together and what they're kind of trying to work through is just kind of mind blowing. It's in, quite incredible TV, actually. Okay, and so the five minute stare off, you know, that was the laughable thing, actually doesn't get in the way of the show. And, and no, uh, and thankfully it's not shown in its entirety. I was fearing that a bit. I thought it was going to be five minutes of people staring <laughs> at each other the screen. with a clock like, <laughs> come on, please, please. Um, and it's not really the pinnacle of the show either. Uh, so what I liked, I think, most about it is it's it's the catalyst for bringing people together. But what you're really watching is will these different couples, um, and so you get these South Sudanese guys in one episode, but you also get like a, a married couple who's been separated for a number of years and they're coming back together. As these different couples get together, they're basically, you learn a bit more, a bit about why they've been separated. And then from this stare off, are they then going to try to work on a future together after this one-on-one encounter. So the mix of the backstory and then the stare-off and then the um, will they go on into the future, I think is what makes the show really great as opposed to, again, this ludicrous-sounding idea of staring at each other. As powerful as it is to look people in the eye, I still think it's a little bit silly. Is is this show suggesting, though, that five minutes is enough to actually fix a relationship? No. 
No, and I reckon that again is another thumbs up for this show. It's it's not it, Ray Martin as the host of this show isn't sort of standing up saying, "Look, all your troubles are going to be sorted out if you just can stare at each other um, in the, in the eyes." And, and some other episodes have um, a mother who's separated from her son, or a, a father separated from his daughter. Um, and they're, they're coming together in looking for reconciliation, some sort of reunion to occur. And so the bulk of the show is about both parties needing to want to show up and then what they're going to do after the stare-off. So I keep going back to uh, this, this central idea of look me in the eye, this kind of novelty factor of the stare-off. Thankfully, the show in itself isn't trying to make us swallow that if we just looked each other in the eye a little bit more often we could sort out our problems we could reconcile our our relationships would be worked out it's not saying that now ben this show is about reconciliation it is and as christians we know that we can't have reconciliation until forgiveness takes place does the show go that far uh, it, it does. It does. And another interesting thing about Look Me in the Eye is that um, it's a show that's a it's a platform, but it's not then forcing its participants to go in any particular direction. So I'll go back to these South Sudanese guys who live in Australia. One of them is a former child soldier. The other guy was his former tormentor. As a child, the child soldier in the army, when he was being punished, he was being punished by a particular man. And you, in the first episode of Look Me in the Eye, which you can watch on SBS On Demand now, get to see them stare off at each other. And the, the guy, the former tormentor, asks the former child soldier for forgiveness for forgiveness and so look me in the eye as much as it's setting up for reconciliation as pretty much each couple gets on the show and stares each other in the face has to get to a point pretty much of forgiveness of working out whether they're going to someone's going to forgive or not a past hurt a trauma a sadness a depression it's an amazing reminder as a christian of the power of forgiveness the ongoing need for forgiveness how forgiveness is an attitude and a choice and a decision that you have to make and somehow look me in the eye as much as it's a platform for reconciliation, almost naturally as a program has to get to the point of saying forgiveness is required for reconciliation, even though that's not actually built into the show. So, Mark, I'm sorry to SBS that I ever doubted Look Me In The Eye. And I forgive you. <laughs> look Me In The Eye is hosted by Ray Martin and features different couples who look each other in the eye. It airs on each Wednesday, SBS at 8.30pm, or search it on for SBS On Demand. Yep, it's online right about now. All right, coming up on the big picture, everything is awesome and ninja-y with a Lego Ninjago song. Plus, we're going to get all royal with Dame Judi Dench in Victoria and Abdul. Hey, welcome back to the show. And don't forget to podcast The Big Picture. Find us wherever you get your good podcasts from. That's where we'll be, The Big Picture. Listen to us all the time, wherever you are. We've come up to our soundtrack segment, and we're actually going to have a look at something that's exciting children across the planet. We're only days away from the release of the third movie from the toy giant Lego, the Lego Ninjago movie. So we thought it would be a good idea to pay a little attention to how music can be used to market a media product and play this. Stop for training and we're getting started. It's on you know. And we want to see you whip and shout it. We rock, you roll. They say, go slow. And everything just stands so still. Keep on beating till we're in our zone. They 
So this is the weekend whip by The Fold, okay, a band that pretty much owes its international success to Lego. How, now, how so? Uh, well, I mean, sure, as an American indie rock band, The Fold do have five albums, uh, number one singles and Grammy nominations, okay, but basically they're known as uh, the band that Lego paid to make their theme songs. You know, and the so, band that Lego bought. Band, the band that Lego yeah. bought. In 2011, they were contracted by Lego to write the theme song to the original Lego Ninjago TV series. Now, parents who are watching have got kids into Lego just know that song ad nauseum. So please excuse me for fading it down early. But the truth is, if you've heard it once, you've heard it a million times. Um, the, the Fold went on to write all sorts of Lego Ninjago songs, 26 Lego Ninjago songs so far, including... 26? Su- yes, including such memorable titles. Now, that was the Weekend Whip. There's the Weekend Whip Michael AM2 2014 remix. Uh, there, sure, yeah. There's, there's the Anaconda remix. There's the Lord Argy remix. <laughs> I, I particularly like um, After the Blackout, um, Ninja Go, um, the Ghost Whip, the spinning out in colour whip. Are these other the, tracks? These that are done? all of the Born to Be a Ninja. A W E S O M E spells awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lego's really getting their money's worth out of the fold. <laughs> Indeed, the fold have gone on to do more theme music for other. They've turned this into an industry. It's a cottage industry for this indie band. Several NFL teams have got them to write their themes for them, as well as the Chicago Cubs with that hit song, Let's Go Cubbies. Ah, yeah, Let's Go okay. Cubbies. So, yeah. Which goes to show that music not only soothes savage beast it amps the average lego fan and it fills the pockets of those incorruptible indie artists once again a bit of a change of pace now from for something entirely, entirely different, different <laughs> because we can talk about dame judy dench now one of the most beloved british actors ever 20 years ago she played the 19th century english ruler queen victoria in mrs brown about the monarch's unusual relationship with a scottish servant Released last Thursday, Victoria and Abdul is something of a sequel to Mrs. Brown, with Dench again playing the ageing queen, who again has another surprise relationship with a servant. No one really knows what it's like to be queen. Mother! Are you spying on me? Everyone I've loved has died, and I just go on and on. What is the point? Service, Your Majesty. We are here for a greater purpose. You are a servant no longer. You will teach me Urdu and the Quran. You've upset the order of everything. Drop this Indian peasant. Or we will have you certified insane. We're in safe hands here, gentlemen, Victorian Abdul. It's from director Stephen Frears, who made The Queen with Helen Mirren, so he knows he knows a bit about right royal territory. And he also made Mrs. Henderson Presents and Philomena with James Duty Dench um, as well. So he knows how to work with grand British actors, does director Stephen Frears. Uh, this is set in the late 19th century. Queen Victoria is in her late 60s, and the film covers the final 15 years of the life of the longest-serving British monarch. Um, through some very odd events, uh, she comes to form a friendship with an, Indi- an Indian bloke who waits upon her table. This is Abdul, played by um, a really cool Indian actor called Ali Fazal, who uh, has done a lot of work in Bollywood, but I reckon in the next couple of years you're going to start seeing him in more um, Western cinema. Uh, Along the way, the Queen confesses to Abdul about her loneliness and what's the point of existence. Um, Abdul's earnest and exotic and interesting and apparently devoted to the Queen, who is also the Empress of India. And so as the title Victoria and Abdul would suggest, 
the bulk of the movie is about this very unusual relationship that they have. Yeah, it's true. Look, people talk about Princess Diana and Charles as the royal couple, okay? But the royal couple for royal watchers is Victoria and Abdul, not Abdul, Victoria and Albert, okay? Her, her, her husband. Yeah, he dies. Um, it's a fantastic love story there. Is this one just for Royal Watchers? It's kind of like part two after Albert's gone? Well, well almost like part three because we, um, as Sam mentioned in the intro, Mrs. Brown, that Jane, Dame Judi Dench also played Queen Victoria in that film, had this relationship with a Scottish servant that Billy Connolly played in that film. And then after that, she had a separate relationship with this uh, this man, Abdul. Um, is it just for Royal Watchers? Yeah, I think mostly. Uh, it's pretty much for anyone who, as soon as they hear Dame Judi Dench, just goes, my goodness, I need to rush out to the cinema and see this movie no matter what it is. It's for fans of her, fans of royal, royal royalty cinema, fans of British uh, period pieces. Uh, for, for me, I'm not a huge fan of all of those things necessarily. I thought this film started quite strongly. Very broad humour, but plays quite well to um, a, yeah, quite a, a wide audience. But then as the film goes along, it peters out, especially in its final third, just it runs on the spot with the same kind of issues and relationships relationships and tensions going on and doesn't really seem to know where it's going or how it wants to resolve or wrap up the story that it's telling. Oh, okay. Um, so one of the interesting things that gets me about this, though, is that uh, you know the suggestion maybe that there's a relationship, I mean a relationship, between the Queen and the Indian guy. Does that actually happen? Is there any of that? Look, there's um, suggestions that uh, the Queen is attracted to Abdul. She's 44 years his senior. Uh, there's some mild flirtation suggested in the film, but by and large it's uh, demonstrated that their relationship was platonic. Now, whether that was true or not, I'm not entirely sure in, in real life. But it's, it is presented as a platonic thing. One of the strongest things going for Victoria and Abdul, I think, is how it does uphold platonic friendships, particularly between a man and a woman. That's, that's right, because normally we've basically denigrated that, haven't we? We've yeah, dropped the yeah. whole and look, idea. Look, that's, that's, problem, that's problematic, depending on your situation in life and who uh, your, your significant others and all that, that kind of thing. This is a difficult thing, particularly between a man and a woman. But Victoria and Abdul uh, does go to some way... As a movie to upholding how uh, powerful and potent friendships can be in our lives, particularly for a, a leader of not just one country but an empire and uh, someone who is uh, looked to and revered uh, but sort of treated as a, a little bit like kept at a distance, doesn't really have people that are close to her or if they are close to her, she's pretty concerned that they're just scheming and trying to get what they can from her and to have someone like Abdul come into her life is uh, someone who is a, a breath of fresh air, can be a confidant and it's, I wonder if in real life the Queen did reveal so many things to this guy who this is true, she employed this guy as something called a munchie do you guys know what a munchie is? It's a German snack food Ah, no, it's an, it's an Urdu word, it's an, an Indian dialect, it's a, it's a word for teacher and the kind of teaching that goes on between Abdul and Victoria is everything from Indian customs and traditions to spirituality mm. as well. So she actually had her own spiritual advisor who was an Indian fellow. Yeah, they? an Indian Muslim fellow. All right. Well, you know, our world still remains divided among uh, re along religious and uh, racial grounds. So is Victoria and Abdul 
offering us a way forward by looking to this past relationship? That's a very astute observation, Sam, because, uh, yes, going underneath this film is religion and racial divides. There's a lot of jokes, particularly about how the British treat the Indian people uh, and Indians having a go at the British for that. So you get that race. And also class divides come up in this as well. But if you, I'm sure most people could like work this out themselves. Queen Victoria was the head of the Church of England at the time. One of her closest confidants is an Indian Muslim bloke, and she even invites him so close into her inner sanctum to be, as I just mentioned before, a munchi, something of a spiritual advisor to her. I think Victoria and Abdul itself as a movie is trying to suggest to us as viewers that um, there's a lot to be said for uh, friendship that crosses over faith lines there's a really strong vibe particularly about promoting what's um, good and noble about islam Uh, there's many opportunities taken in the film to present islam in a positive light one of the dangers i think though of victoria and abdul guys is as you're watching uh, this queen and this indian guy uh, talk about their different belief systems uh, and victoria herself isn't that strong about her christian faith at least in this film But as you see them sort of set up side by side, what you could walk out with from Victoria and Abdul, I think, is thinking that what they believe in or a lot of the core things they believe in are the same, that there aren't any differences between, in this case, Christianity and Islam. There's a real Mm. undercurrent in this film, I think, of all religions are the same. And that, that to me, like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems a little bit like the times that we live in now. Yeah, that's that's more now than it is, in fact, the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, it's hard to tell as a, as a viewer. I haven't studied the history of Queen Victoria. I don't know the ins and outs of, of all this. This is definitely based on a true story, and as the film itself suggests, it's mostly true. But it does feel like a little bit of history being rewritten back from our perspective now, trying to push the vibe that let's all just get along, religion and faith. Um, we're, we all basically believe in the same things. I think it's uh, one of the dangers of Victoria and Abdul is walking out thinking that's actually true, that we all do believe in the same things, which mm, it's just not the case. Well, Victoria and Abdul stars Dame Judi Dench, Ali Fazal, Eddie Izzard and that quintessential British gentleman, Michael Gambon. It opened at cinemas last Thursday, September 14. Now, coming up on the big picture, from the English throne to the kings and queens of movie comedy and also Mark's right royal top five films for royal watchers. Tip, tip. Welcome back to the show. Uh, don't forget to find us on Facebook at The Big Picture Show. Interact with us all through the week. Let us know what you think about movies and TV, especially from a Christian perspective. We at The Big Picture are always interested in hearing from you. That's right. And now, uh, late last month, a bit sad, wasn't it, when Jerry Lewis died? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. He was one of America's best-known and loved comedians, perhaps most famous for the original Nutty Professor film. Yeah. Yeah. He was also in the 1982 Martin Scorsese movie called The King of Comedy. And so for The Vault this week, we asked Insights reviewer and big picture Prince, Russ Matthews, to present a procession of kings and queens in cinema comedy. And Russ grouped them into categories of comedy, starting with historical. Go. Okay, the list would be Buster Keaton, Bob Hope, Mae West. But I probably would say the king of comedy for me as far as going back into history would have to definitely be Groucho Marx. Groucho Marx with the Marx Brothers, with Duck Soup, Animal Animal Crackers, and The Night at the Opera. An amazingly defining comedian. Okay, moving on to Slapstick. Okay, Slapstick would be Rowan Atkinson, Jack Black, Jerry Lewis, Peter Sellers, John Belushi. But I'm going to crown the king right now would be Jim Carrey. There's no one who does more physicality to his, his comedy than 
than probably Jim Carrey would. And he, you know, you'd, you'd be able to see him in the mask, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Good call. Even though one of the reasons we're doing this list is because Jerry Lewis died recently, and I thought he might get the crowning vote here just like because of that. But no, you pushed through, and yeah, you've I gone for Jim Carrey. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. What, uh, what are we on to next? Verbal abilities? Verbal abilities. We'll probably have to go with um, Eddie Murphy, Simon Pegg, Mike Myers from Shrek fame, but then also I would probably say I would crown Steve Martin. Steve Martin as being the king of the verbal abilities. Over four decades, this guy. Since 1979, the jerk, all the way up to what we have you know, with dirty, rotten scoundrels and planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, Russ, it turns out we have very similar tastes in comedy. This is an awesome list. Steve Martin is just great. Okay, moving on to groundbreaking then. Well, groundbreaking, I mean, there's a whole bunch of those different people that we had. They were like Jerry Lewis and Buster Keaton and all those. But I would say definitely Charlie Chaplin would have set the benchmark originally for comedy and cinema. But I have to say Woody Allen would probably be the one that I would put down as groundbreaking. Why so? Well, because he's not only an actor and also a director, but he's actually become a persona himself. People can see Woody Allen and other characters in films just because of this neurotic guy from Annie Hall, Manhattan, and Bananas, you know, in other films, that you'd be able to see this is a guy who actually has really broke ground. Women. There's so many different women. You know, you can go to Bette Midler, you can go to Christian Wig, you can go to Melissa McCarthy, Lily Tomlin, Whoopi Goldberg, who won an Academy Award for Ghost. But probably Lucille Ball is the one that would define really the comedian, as it were. As as but she came to fame on TV, Russ. Yeah, she's in TV in the 1950s and 60s. But one of the things that Lucille Ball that most people don't realize is actually she got all of her training in film. She had been in so many different roles throughout. And she'd actually been in some great films with Abbott and Costello. She's in a film called Fancy Pants and also Easy Living that I think she really helped to set it in the cinema and then it took her to television. Okay, we've got a couple more categories to go. We're up to troops. Troops would be, you know, like say Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Monty Python, which is probably one of my favorite films is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But it comes down to, interestingly enough, is Christopher Guest and Company, who does all these great mockumentaries. This is Spinal Tap, Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show. It's at the benchmark for really fascinating comedy. I'm still laughing about those guys. And finally, in the category of themselves, who's the winner of that? Okay, you know what? There's certain comedians that just really are comedy. You think when you think comedy, you think of Bill Murray. You may, for those who really enjoy him too, Will Ferrell. But I have to say, Robin Williams has come to define, um, as far as going through and define comedy in such a unique way. You'll be able to see all that he's done as far as spanning his career um, with Mrs. Doubtfire, Patch Adams, even Dead Poet Society and Goodwill Hunting, even though those are more dramas. It was really his comedic training that I think really helped to define it. Great sweep through cinematic history, Russ, of kings and queens of comedy. What's your punchline on comedy on screen? It really kind of comes down to, interesting, I see laughter as a gift. Charlie Chaplin said, a day without laughter is a day wasted. But also even in the Bible, in Ecclesiastes 3, we see a time to weep and a time to laugh. That laughter is really supposed to be a part of our lives. And so looking at these people, I think they really help us to laugh and maybe even get more out of life in the process. Thanks again to Big Picture regular Russ Matthews for The Vault this week, uh, sharing with us his kings and queens of cinema comedy. You can read more of Russ's reviews over at insights.uca.org.au. Insights is a big believer in Big Picture. We believe in Insights too. Mm. And also over at Insights, you can check out Mark and I talking more about Victoria and Abdul. There's also 40th anniversary articles about the Uniting Churches anniversary this year over at insights.uca.org.au. Well, we've had our fair share of royalty so far on the show. So as we come to the pinnacle of every episode of The Big Picture, the top five, 
We thought we couldn't do better than us, Mark, to crown his top five films for royal watches. So, Mark, shall we uh, let the ceremony begin? Indeed. Five. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a roundabout approach to this royal watching. Because oh, this I is think, usually what I do with a top I know, five. And you sneer and mock at me. No, no, And then no. I make my justifications and then you apologise to me profusely and you tell me how <laughs> right I was. Anyway, back to that, your list. That, that might have been in your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> my number number five, I yes. thought, you know, talking about royal films, Coming to America. <laughs> a great uh, place to start. This is a great film. Now, if you don't know anything about this film, it's the, extre- the story of an extremely pampered African prince, the heir to the throne of Zombie. Munda, who travels to Queens, New York, to get a queen uh, and goes undercover to find a wife whom he can respect for her intelligence and will. So it stars Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall and John Amos and James Earl Jones as the king of Zomunda. The voice of Darth Vader. Yes, indeed. And Mufasa. Uh, and Mufasa. My, uh, one of the greatest moments actually got nothing to do with royalty. Um, one of my favourite moments is uh, the fact that uh, John Amos, who plays the dad of the wife that um, Eddie Murphy is looking for, um, actually is running an institution called McDowell's. Do you remember that? It's a restaurant mm. called McDowell's. Mm. He's actually ripping off McDonald's in every step, but it's never he's never acknowledging the trademark. Anyway, um, there's a lots, of, lots of great things to be seen in Coming to America. Great way to start, but let's move on. Here's one for the documentary fans. If we're talking about royalty and watching royalty, When We Were Kings from Oh, that's a great documentary, yes. It is a brilliant documentary. In fact, it's an Academy Award-winning documentary. It's a documentary about the 1974 heavyweight championship bout in Zaire, the rumble in the jungle, between world champion George Foreman and underdog challenger, yes, he was an underdog, Muhammad Ali. Mm-mm. Okay, and so... and. Oh, I don't want to give away the story. It's history, but it's a fantastic, <laughs> it's a fantastic insight into the mind games that go on inside of uh, of boxing matches long before the match itself actually takes place and the strategies involved. The film actually took twenty three years to make, mainly because the ne- it's all original footage and the negatives and rights were all caught up in civil suits. Mm. So it's actually oh, okay. the legal action that stopped yeah, it yeah. actually ever yeah. being released. But it's but, the kind of documentary that even if you have no interest in something like boxing, yes. you should watch because it won't necessarily change your tune on boxing. It's just a fantastic de- depiction of boxing. This is of a, a subject the, matter. This is where documentaries succeed in selling you on, on on an insight in life, and I feel like it's a brilliant one. When we were kings, um, interestingly, when the film actually won the Academy Award for Best Feature Documentary, uh, George Foreman and Muhammad Ali came up to the stage with the filmmakers to show that there were no hard feelings between Aww. the two of them. Uh, in fact, Ali at that time was stricken with Parkinson's disease and Foreman helped him up onto the stage. Here we go with our royal watching with the Royal Tenenbaums. Yes. Okay, from 2001. Here, so, here. So far, I've got three yeses from Ben. So I feel like if I can get this all the way through to the end. You're a chance I would, now, Mark. I, I know. Yeah. I could, I could, it's an outside chance, but we'll see. Okay, the Royal Tenenbaums in 2001 is this uh, fantastic uh, Wes Anderson film. So Wes Anderson is a quirkiest director on the planet. Probably my favourite director of all time. Like, I just Whoa. really love him. Um, he's uh, telling a story about this estranged father, this patriarch of a clan. Called Royal called Tenenbaum. Royal Tenenbaum. His first and, name's Royal. Ah. And everybody in the family is a genius. You know, so the Tenenbaums uh, family are just full it's of like geniuses. It's like my household. Indeed. It's also... 
populated with genius uh, actors. Gene Hackman, Angelica Houston, Ben Stiller, Gwyneth Paltrow, Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, and the list goes on and on and on. It's just brilliant actors, actors all together. But here's something to look out for if you actually watch the Royal Tenenbaums. Wes Anderson has this thing he does. You know how, like, some directors always have this thing that they'll include in a film. Mm. Okay, Alfred Hitchcock always made sure he got his own picture in the film yes. somewhere. Right, well, uh, Wes Anderson always does an underwater shot. What? Okay, yeah. And in every Wes Anderson film, he puts a character under underwater. But um, interestingly, he's been doing it cumulatively. So in his first film, okay, in Bottle Rocket, he had one character underwater. Okay. And, and then uh, in Rushmore, he did two characters underwater and in the Royal Tenenbaums which followed next he has three people underwater just follow it through it's interesting wow. by the time he actually gets up to doing his 20th film it's going to be a, a, a health hazard two. 2010 saw probably the second best royal watching film ever and that's okay. why it's at number two on your yes. list. <laughs> <laughs> the King's Speech. Oh, bravo, man. Yeah, you, would, you would have to be emotionally dead not to have been moved by this film. <laughs> you do not have a heart. <laughs> yeah, it's, you were taken it out, thrown away, and replaced with a toaster. It's the story <laughs> of King George VI of the United Kingdom and Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He's impromptu in ses- ascension to the throne. He wasn't meant to be king, uh, but his brother stepped down, uh, and there we had the crisis that propelled him into the throne. And he was a man who struggled with speaking. So he has a speech therapist who comes in and helps him shore up the monarchy with his first major speech. An Australian speech therapist. Hilarious. Geoffrey Rush. An Australian teaching an English person to speak. Mm. Great. Of course, he's not the only person who's doing some great speaking in the film. Helena Bonham Carter's in it. Colin Firth. Michael Gambon's back because it's a British film. Yes. Contractually obliged to put in Michael Gambon. It won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, The King's Speech. One. But of course, the best royal watching film ever made would have to focus on Queen Elizabeth. And in fact, it would have to land with The Queen from 2006. Of course. It is brilliant. There's so many reasons to like this film. It's the story that follows immediately after the death of Princess Diana with Queen Elizabeth II struggling with her reaction to the sequence of events that follows. Um, How she deals with Diana as a person who has been very, very destructive to the royal family and to them personally, and how she deals with her as a public figure and what the, the public needs from her and yet how she has to lead against something that she doesn't really feel. Look, The Queen is a brilliant story about someone coming to terms with uh, the fact that they're not in control and they really need you know someone else to step in for me that's like god stepping into an equation and the queen is a noted christian so i've no trouble saying that i'm sure that's where she found her strength about to make a statement princess diana touched the lives of so many others she was the people's princess no member of the royal family will speak publicly about this Diana's no longer a member of the royal family. What are you talking about? Charles, this is a private matter. We do things in this country quietly, with dignity. Will someone please save these people from themselves? The Queen at number one, almost out of time, but coming up next week on The Big Picture, we're going on a road trip to heaven with The Good Place. And we're going to be hitting out against men versus women in the Battle of the Sexes. And we're going to be doing our best to follow the instructions in Lego Ninjago. I'm going to be Ben McKecken next week. And I'll still be Mark Hadley. See you next week. 
The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 